0: Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, Episode 7, Breweries and Restaurants. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And on today's episode, our guest, Addison DiMalle, broker at National Restaurant Properties, does an amazing job breaking down the restaurant and brewery industry and how it affects real estate investors. He goes over trends in the food and drink industry, how to add additional square footage at an amazing price point, how to negotiate leases, and much more. Here it is.
1: Today, we've got uh, a discussion to have with Addison Damali. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And welcome to our episode on retail and restaurant locations. Uh, We're welcome to have Addison with us today. Damali, as I said, Addison, you mind giving us a little breakdown of your past, present, and future, what you've got going on?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Um, I grew up here in Charlotte, been in commercial real estate and business brokerage for restaurant and bars for two years now. I was uh, working at an institutional investment company for a few years, sitting behind a computer looking at spreadsheets all day and got bored. And I wanted to kick rocks on the street and um, got into this. We do um, traditional commercial real estate brokerage, purchase, sale, lease, represent tenants, and landlords, sign leases. Uh, and then we also do the business brokerage Part which is similar to um, like investment banking for small businesses under you know five to ten million in revenues.
1: Okay, do you want to get into some of the schematics of how uh, what folks are looking for location wise and in the new businesses in general? I guess we can talk about different types of businesses from restaurant to breweries to office locations. Maybe a little bit about locations.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I think the most important thing right now is walkability and and getting the foot traffic. At the end of the day, yeah, you know, restaurants, bars, breweries, hotels, even. I mean, they're they're all street corner businesses. So, yeah, you know, people are going to be looking for you know, the best spots for their concept, residential density, and then um, yeah, Instagrammable spots too. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that being a big, uh, a big
1: growing segment is the uh, Instagramming. Yeah. What are uh, some things that
0: you've seen successful landlords do or best practices?
2: Yeah. From a, from a real estate perspective, I think a lot of landlords forget that they're a business partner of the tenant, you know, and, and if they don't look at that relationship that way, you know, that they're going to be, you know, handcuffing themselves out of the gate. I would say the next thing would be to use a broker, right? Yeah. You know, no sales pitch necessary, <laughs> but, um, but I really think that the most important part of the leasing process is, uh, credit evaluation of the tenant and brokers see that every day they're out on the streets and they've got a, an idea of, you know, what people can do in certain spots. uh and, and then behind that, you know, it would be the attorneys, bankers, accountants, you know, the typical people that you know, any real estate guy would have on his team.
1: You talk about the partnership between the landlord and the tenant, and that, that's one of the most important things you're talking about, because a lot of the leases and businesses you're looking at, there's a significant amount of rent that's coming in every month. Right. So, you know the ability to keep that revenue stream going for you know in their long term leases there are 3 to 5 to 10 year leases with right. options involved so what what are some of the can you give us some examples of of how you've seen a uh,
2: landlord you know, really partner up with a tenant to make sure that they they do succeed? Sure. I I think the most creative way, you don't see this too often, but the, uh, the most creative way to do it would be a straight percentage of sales lease. It's pretty common in the hotel business. If you were to lease out, uh, if you were to own a hotel property and lease it to a company that you, you would do it on maybe six, seven percent, seven and a half percent of annual sales would go to the property owner. Beyond that, I think just working with the tenant to you know, provide you know, the things they need for leasehold improvements, upfit money, that kind of stuff. And in our market for restaurant and bar properties, you know some of the independent spots, a lot of the landlords are former restaurant and bar operators themselves so they can provide you know, insight to, to the tenants.
1: Yeah, almost on a uh, consulting basis exactly. to some degree. Exactly. And that number I like the percentage of of uh revenue because you can kind of back into that number too as a landlord like right. hey, I mean, I guess you can as much as you can. There's a lot of, there's a lot of forecasting
2: that's going to be involved in sure. that. Sure. And and you've got credit requirements for if if you've got debt on the property, yeah, they might require you to have a certain coverage ratio or, and and there might be a minimum, you know, whether it's two or $3,000 a month minimum, uh, rent payment, but then a seven and a half percentage percent of sales lease, uh, that, that would be the most creative way. It's you know honestly not too common, but it, I mean, it does happen.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to get too granular on it, but we talked a little bit about the upfit costs, which are obviously significant, especially in some of these businesses, whether it be a restaurant, a brewery, any kind of retail what what's the most common thing does the tenant fork that out and then get reimbursed by the landlord or the landlord pay for that up front given that it's a quality tenant usually
2: the the tenant has to spend it and have it to get it back that's a you know, credit evaluation tool to make sure you're not giving money to a guy that's not going to show up you know to his first day of of you know on the job yeah but um yeah are there circumstances where they might front it if it's a strong enough tenant? Yeah, absolutely. I, and and the stronger you are as a tenant, you know, you might get equipment put in by the landlord. You might get a full build out. The, I've I've seen it happen too, where you know the landlord does the entire build out. They you know roll you know the money that they put in into the rent at a yield that they need to to make it make sense, and they put the key in the operator's hand and say, you yeah, know, give me a rent check in thirty days. Yeah. That's going to work out well. Yeah, that's yeah. brave. Yeah, and 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 you've got to, you know, you've got to have a good, you know, tenant that that you, know, you believe in to do something like that. I would say um where it gets tricky, you know, I would imagine this goes across the board for any industry, but especially for restaurants, when the landlord owns the equipment, it complicates things a little bit. So I I would you know suggest that they do you know anything, you know, based on the terms they negotiate up to, you know, short, you know, short of putting the equipment in, because usually when, you know, when the tenant leaves, the, the lease states that it needs to be returned to the condition that it was when they took it over. And if that's 20 years down the road and, you know, (laughs) $50,000 worth of restaurant equipment's broken, they need to put $50,000 into the building.
1: Yeah. Plus the fact that you've got another tenant that you
2: might come in if this lease doesn't go on and right, and it could be a totally different concept right You could be going from a Brazilian steakhouse to a a cocktail bar right
1: what 's the average do you i mean there's no average, but what do you see on like a restaurant or um, something similar on a what 's a typical
2: build out cost i 'd say about one hundred and fifty dollars a foot you know depending on the concept there are ways to spend a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's ways to spend a lot less than that. I mean, there's people in Charlotte right now putting a million dollars million dollar buildouts into buildings they don't own. And where you can really go sideways is when you're putting money into things that don't generate cash. You know, your your oven, your your range that produces something for you to sell, the tiles on your floor don't.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I went to a new uh A newer French restaurant downtown. And I think the lighting package alone in there was probably half a million bucks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was intense. What do you see as like the normal build out
0: time when doing the tenant improvements?
2: Um, I mean, it, it depends on the concept again, but yeah, I'd I'd say three to six months, like a, a neighborhood bar that doesn't have a kitchen. I mean, somebody like that could be open in less than 30 days if, if they're doing a you know, huge restaurant and um, really nice build out. It could take six months. I've seen people come in. A a lot of it has to do with, you know, process knowledge too. I've seen people come in from out of state and, you know, try to do the entire build out themselves uh, because they maybe had a construction background somewhere else and it ended up taking them two years to get open. So you, 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 I can't emphasize enough that, you know, Outsourcing responsibilities to people with local market knowledge is is really important.
1: Yeah, that I, I mean, I can I can see that easily. You come into a new market, and yeah, you could build a hundred of these, but you haven't built them with the with the local vendors and suppliers. Exactly, so. building codes. Right, building codes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. We we kind of already talked about a little bit, like with the revenue based on, sorry, with the rental rate based on the gross uh, sales, but how do you see it? I guess, I've, I'm guessing it's gone wrong where you've seen, or you can see rental rates negatively
2: impact a business. Absolutely. I mean, um, once you start creeping up past eight, I'd, I'd say even, you know, for a really good location, you know, 10% could be healthy of, you know, triple net base rent. Yeah. And then the add-ons. Uh, on top of that. But w- once you get above 10% of sales for net rent payments, it really starts eroding the profit margin. You know, and the, the backbone of the restaurant business for the last you know, 5,000 years mm-hmm. <laughs> has been you know, cheap labor, cheap rent, and cheap food costs. And you know, we're really in a period of time where where the margins are shrinking so much that you know, they're lucky to get 15, per, 15 cents on every dollar. That, that comes in the door to go in their pocket. So, you know, if you think about y- your rent becomes 15% of sales and you're running a 10% margin that cuts your profits in half.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you've got your food margin and you've got your, your booze margin. Um, well, how does that affect, I know, want to get too far into just right. restaurants, um, right. but how does the, what's the, is
2: there a shift going on where you're seeing more of one versus the other food versus the booze? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the neighborhood. It depends on the neighborhood, depends on the demographics. Uh, in North Carolina is really interesting in that the the, the way our ABC commission regulates restaurants, you, you need 30% food sales to be considered a restaurant which, you know, knowing the difference between a restaurant and a private club in the state of North Carolina is something important for landlords to know because it's you know, different client bases and activities that are going to happen. And uh, there's a lot of famous neighborhood bars. You know, Selwyn Pub is, is a private club.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a famous spot in town. It is. Can you talk
0: about what first movers in a neighborhood look for? For example, like a brewery, that's the first one to open up in an area. Right. What are they looking for to be able to choose what neighborhood to go into?
2: I think the first you know, thing that people are looking for is cheap rent. Like wh- where is is it's a seesaw between cheap rent and rooftops? You know, so like where are the rooftops being built? But the commercial pricing, you know, real estate prices aren't there yet. And it's a very fine line between finding value and, you know, not being robbed at gunpoint sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've had, you know, friends, you know, uh, I grew up with bought houses in, you know, um, 10 years ago, you know, right outside uptown. You know, and, you know, they got killer deals, probably seven or eight X on their cost basis now. But yeah, they were robbed at gunpoint the first year they lived in the house.:
1: yeah, you, there's a price you pay for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you say the smart ones probably well you, maybe you should say the f- smart ones are looking at at the rent costs because they're they're looking at you know their, their margins their margins right, but I, I'm guessing all all
2: folks in those businesses don't follow the same rules. right, right, and I, I think that you know a lot of people are they, you know they just cluster around where, where other other people are yeah kind
1: of follow the leader kind of deal
2: right which isn't always a great move correct
0: are they are like the first movers sophisticated enough or do they look at the average like wage income of the neighborhood not just like number of people because like it's easy to find cheap buildings in not so great areas right but if there's no one that can buy their 15 burger
2: i mean that that, that's important i think that you've for independent bars and restaurants, it's way more of an art than it is a science. You know, when you get into like commodity food, fast food, QSR, that's a lot more important. It, it is important for independents, but if you have the, you know, depending on what your concept is, if it's a destination concept, you could be in the worst spot in town and, you know, you're going to do $2 million a year yeah. in sales
1: yeah we even we talked about this before we got started that, that there's i want to call them almost suburban areas around the town that that do better business than the town- than
2: spots right in downtown right in downtown charlotte right and uh, yeah you know some of the perimeter towns and, and it's weird you know on, on one side you know in, in Charlotte you've got Ballantyne and and Belmont i think Belmont is the 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 highest disparity between you know how high the sales are and how low the rents are that's going to change you know the market's going to correct that but to me that's a you know, a big time buy signal for places like Belmont and maybe a stay away for for Ballantyne
1: yeah, because you've got the complete opposite in Ballantine, right? Right. Even though you've probably got significantly
2: higher average household income. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and you you've got to you've got to remember it's and I think that comes back to to density. You know, maybe the neighborhood isn't dense enough for how high the incomes are. Uh and yeah, you know, even if you make, yeah, you know, 300,000 a year, you know, are are you going to spend more than somebody that makes $90,000 a year eating out at restaurants, you know, m- maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not.
0: Can you talk about like what the effect Starbucks has on neighborhoods and all of the retail and restaurants that kind of follow them right. and your targets of the world?
2: Yeah. And I, I think that like Starbucks and, you know, some of the bigger, you know, corporate real estate guys, they've got, you know, really good you know, real estate departments, really good, you know, brokers and and folks they team up with to help pick sites. I don't, th- I don't believe that, that Starbucks makes you know, neighborhoods better. I think they're just really good at picking <laughs> sites in neighborhoods that are growing.
1: That nobody's uh, identified yet. Right. They, they were, they were there, obviously yeah. they didn't build the neighborhood around <laughs> right. it. So
2: exactly. They exactly. just did more homework or yeah. saw something that nobody else could see. Yeah. They're not in the, you know, in the clubhouse at a you know, new suburb you right. know, on the, on the edge of town. Right. Right how do you attract food and beverage tenants as a landlord i i think it it has to do with it has to do so much with owning properties in the right locations owning cool properties you know nobody wants to put in a, re- a restaurant in an old you know 90s dentist office right yeah you know it, the cooler your building is the 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 cooler Tenants, you're going to find sometimes it because you know, so much of the back end sales for the restaurant have to do with aesthetics. It's yeah. something that you you really have to think about more than yeah you know, um, yeah you know, a convenience store or you know office space.
1: Yeah, I mean you do see sometimes where uh, I guess there's got to be a vision from the restaurant as well. Cause you'll see, you know, old gas stations that somehow seem to make it. Right, um, They've got the vision. Obviously it's going to be going back to like the Starbucks effect. They're, they're picking the right location for right. it. So I guess you can beautify anything, but from the start right out of the gate, if you've got a good looking property, you're going to be miles ahead of, of someone else. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Do you have any advice for identifying like good looking properties other than like some of the more obvious ones, like it actually looks good but some like unique right. properties
2: yeah so i mean i think it um it is it's getting tougher to find unique properties because we're going yeah. <laughs> to eventually run out of old buildings. Right. But, um, I think it's buildings that were, you know, originally designed for something that are easily convertible, like the auto auto garages with, they've already, you know, they yeah. got three or four garage bays and, you know, people are going in and putting in breweries in and them and, you know, garage doors, Mate- building materials is important. You know, if you've got, old wood siding on a commercial building that used to be a house that, that people you know bootstrapped together over the years. It's not going to be as cool to go have a meal at with your wife and kids as a brick you know, building or concrete.
1: Yeah. We've, we've mentioned breweries like three or four times already. So why don't we just jump on that horse and, and see where we can go? You mentioned before we got started that, you know, there was a brewery rage, you know, 20, 30 years ago and, and Let's talk about that. Why,
2: why that fell apart and and we're getting there again. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, and I, I I love breweries, you know, I spent a lot of my free time at them, but, uh, I I think that a, a lot of them, you know, we, you know, we were at a, especially for Charlotte when, you know, it was at. The a point in time when real estate was really cheap in these industrial areas, we were coming out of you know really bad financial crisis, and um, you know they, they got they snagged some really cool old buildings. But I think that the brewery community in general misunderstood the market. The, the consumer demand was for beer gardens, cool places to go out drink beer. And you see, you know, a, a lot of folks in town, you know, even even breweries that were successful as beer gardens, doubled down and reinvested their profits in production facilities and canning lines and distribution, and and they don't have the the balance sheet to compete with Anheuser Busch or Miller Coors on distribution. I mean, that's not a business that I want to be in, you know, competing with you know the big guys on you know clipping pennies off of beer bottles. I think that, you know, the ones that that have been the most successful and the ones that will stay around are the ones who realize that they're bars and and they're beer gardens. And that's why I think that a lot of the local breweries have started adding kitchens. It's funny that the guys who I talk to who own breweries, they call me about restaurants and bars now. And the guys that are trying to become, you know, brewers and open a brewery, they, they don't want anything to do with a restaurant or a bar. Yeah. So they're not thinking about it, right? Right. Right. I mean, there's a difference and you know, there's a respect for the craft and the craft of you know, making a local product is awesome, you know, but there's also there's a difference between art and business. Yeah.
1: And, and what about the rents? Like the rents obviously help folks that got into it six, seven years ago or right. whatnot and, and were able to keep those rates low exactly, or maybe even buy the building and right. they're, they're locked in, let's just say, right. Right. versus folks coming in now trying to
2: compete. They're paying probably 5X, right? What, at what least. What some of these guys were yeah. paying? Yeah. What do those rates look like? I mean, so originally you had, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, you had industrial buildings that were, you know, borderline obsolescent in, in some cases and, you know, they went in at, you know, $5 a square foot or less in some cases and, you know, now you've got uh, brewery sign and leases at25 dollars a square foot. I just, I just don't I mean when you think about the amount of space, I, I don't know what the ratio of square feet off the top of my head that the tanks take up in a right. brewery, but what adds value in a restaurant or bar is seats. You know, how many times you can turn the seats? It's you know pretty simple calculations. Uh, it, it's a lot of square feet of retail space to be taken up by a tank.
0: Which could be located in like less prime real estate. Exactly. If you wanted to keep brewing
2: your own beer. Exactly.
1: Yeah. What did, you mentioned earlier on, like this going on in the nineties, is that the downfall then you believe
2: was the, the rents just got out of hand and. Yeah. I think that, you know, it, it had to do that the, the rents, you know, growing up, you know, the, the business back then was, um, it, it was a little different than it is now because it was more brew pub driven, you know, uh, and I think that partly they didn't go big enough back then and um i and I still think they're not going big enough now you know if 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 you want to brew and distribute it, it i mean it takes millions of dollars to put a you know full production facility online that's capable of yeah you know, pumping out something like you know like a smaller national brand like or yeah you know, somebody like that,
1: yeah, yeah, the brewery um you're seeing a, an end to it possibly at some point in the near future.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, it, it'll it go, you know, like the, the, you know, five years ago it was the burger restaurants and, uh, you know, five years before that it was the frozen yogurt yeah. places that, that, that were in every, you know, shopping center maybe in yeah. the country. Cupcakes too. Yeah, yeah, cupcakes, absolutely. But um, I, I definitely think there's going to be some consolidation. You know, the, I think the, people that have done real well in the last cycle have done well enough to expand their product line, get into, you know, other markets, whether it's coffee, you know, there's breweries in town that are, you know, adding coffee and other drinks. Um, yeah, some of them do a good job with kombucha. Yeah. That's a very high margin product that, you know, keeps the, keeps the lights on.
1: Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've read I'm not, n- not in the business like you are, but I'll read on occasion. And it seems like that segment of the market is posed to grow the most in the near future. Is that kombucha or not even non-alcoholic drinks right. or even some of the seltzer, like hard seltzers. It looks like that part of the business is, right. has huge potential.
2: Right. And then, yeah, I, I think it's important. And that's a yeah you know, distribution focused business. It's not a, you know, retail real estate play. So uh, I think there'll be a point of time even when when rents get high enough even yeah you know, when they own the building yeah you know, they might become landlords and lease it out to another concept.
0: Hmm. What are some of the, like the other trends you see in the food and beverage space? You mentioned kombucha. Uh what are some other things you see coming up?
2: Yeah, so one of the things I'm the most excited about is the ghost kitchens. So, and this is a really cool real estate product. And I, I think that you know, most of the trends right now are real estate product driven, kind of reinventing or mixing up. You know, how these concepts are delivered to the market. Uh, the, the ghost kitchens are—it's basically taking, you know, really cheap industrial space, the same thing that the breweries were doing, and turning it into a commercial kitchen without a retail presence. So, and then you could, you know, be delivering your food yourself, or or use uh, Postmates or you know one of the big you know, national delivery service, Uber Eats, and it's a way to capitalize on. Very cheap rent, and yeah, still hits your sales numbers.
0: Yeah, that's great because like 100 of the space can be used for production exactly, and then you use Postmates network or right a number of them.
2: You, you outsource the you know the delivery aspect. Yeah, the
0: marketing delivery. There's no sit down, no, no waiters,
2: no customer service. It's just it's, it's and it's, as
0: long as the building's like centrally located, it could be in a very bad area right. where there's robbery, so to speak. Right. It doesn't matter. No customers are coming.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You can be fenced in and no,
0: that's a great concept.
1: Yeah.
2: And if you get a few of those, obviously it'd be great as a landlord to just absolutely. take advantage of that. And space. that you know, it's just like flying, flying on a plane, Yeah. You know, air, airplanes have two engines because if one goes down, you know, you, yeah. st- you <laughs> still got one. I mean, you could literally have, you know, and I've been talking to some, some folks, it, this is coming where you have three, four, five, maybe 10, 2500 square foot uh, restaurant. Uh, and it doesn't just have to be a restaurant. It could be, you know, a startup confectionist, a, a candy maker, baker, you know, and, yeah, you know, clustering the concepts together, you know, it would be able to benefit them a lot.
1: Yeah. And I think you want to, you've got another, I mean,
2: Another concept is the food hall, right? Right. It, it, that's interesting. I, I would say that my take on the food hall is a little more pessimistic than than ghost kitchens. Really? Yeah. So it's a it's a really cool real estate product. It it looks cool. The landlords are making a bunch of money. Uh, the The sales pitch is that it's an incubator for restaurant concepts, but in every other market where they've been put in the operators just aren't making money. There's there's not enough foot traffic. It's too many places in one spot. Sometimes they can't serve alcohol, you know, depending on, you know, sometimes the landlord serves alcohol. And 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 that's 30% or more of the average restaurant's sales.
1: Yeah, I've been lucky to see a few of them, but I can't really comment cuz I saw them in in huge destinations like
2: Madrid. I was right. there last summer. A really cool one there. Right. I loved it though you've got well it's a great it's a great experience it's a great experience for the consumer and you know that's why you know, so much hype has been and they you know they look really cool and that's why so much hype has been created around them but from from a tenant perspective they're just not making the money that you know they need to be making to to keep it going long term and and eventually that'll trickle back to the landlords
1: yeah not again as a novice in the restaurant game, you always hear landlords or even tenants talk about like the costly upfits of, of the property or like you get into the ventilation and whatnot. Right. I thought the cool thing about these food halls is like, you can have one gigantic right like fan in their work and you've got
2: 20 restaurants right. in there. Right. Right. No. And, and you know, that's, that's good. And, and it could be bad. It, it to me, it's taking the, you know, it's, it's, it's taking the model from office space where you, you you might have the the utilities and there's you know a lot of different ways to do it, but um, you know y- your concept might not need to be open as much as another person's concept, but while they're using AC, you're paying for AC. Yeah, that's a um, great point. So it's 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 not necessarily you know, and you know there's different ways to structure it. You know, separately metering the gas and the electric. I'm sure they do that, but um, you know it it it's taking the, you know, traditional triple net format away from from restaurants.
0: Going back to like the ghost kitchens, if an investor was interested in buying some industrial space, how would they go about attracting a like ghost kitchen concept to come in bring their equipment right, and start running their business? Like, what would you recommend for them?
2: So I think the best, um, you know, I think, I mean, they definitely need to talk to people, uh, in, in other markets. It might not be as easy as Charlotte. Charlotte has a huge deficit in commercial kitchen space. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure if somebody up in one of these up here, you yeah, know, they could have at least out in a couple of weeks, <laughs> but, um, can you promise that? Uh, I, I no no promises. <laughs> Offer not valid in the state of North Carolina. <laughs> um, but uh, you know the the big thing with that with the with the ghost kitchens is that you know there's different ways to do it. We talked about Boxman earlier. Um, you could lay a concrete pad, have the tenant bring in their own kitchen in a. Um, shipping container, you know, which is what Boxman Studios is doing in Charlotte. They're, you know, building kitchens and shipping containers. Um, that's the, the leanest way to do it. The The other way is to, you know, either build a building or take over an existing industrial building. And uh, I think there's a huge um, cost advantage for the landlord doing, you know, five to 10 of these at once, you know, separately, getting, getting them separately metered, separate gas lines, you know. To each electric- spot.
1: To each spot, because we're talking now about uh, more open air design, where you could do like if you're talking about uh, food food trucks or a container,
2: uh, whatever it is, it'd be in an outdoor environment, right? And and that I think to for the the food truck or shipping container design, it would be more of a outdoor environment for a retail use. The ghost kitchen would be more of an industrial use, yeah. right? Right.
1: Would the would you see that how? How close to other walkability?
2: Could it be a destination? You think, like the? I think it could. I mean, from you know the, you know, depending on you know where the land's at price wise, and you know what idea somebody had, it could be anything from you know a massive drive-through, yeah, you know, like six drive-throughs, to something totally off the beaten path that you know retail customers don't come to at all, and yeah, as a shipping. Uh, or is a shipping container or an industrial building on a side of town with the cheapest rent?
1: Yeah, to some degree, you have got to be a bit of a pioneer to take
2: a chance and right. Yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> definitely
1: rolling the dice. It, it
2: would definitely, it would definitely be a dice roll. And pioneers, you know, sometimes end up with eras in their back. Right? Yeah. But um, you know, it. Uh, I th- I think it's you know one of the more interesting restaurant yeah you know, real estate products we've heard about lately. We, we, we had it. At, we first got the idea when somebody called us about a year ago, uh, and they wanted to do a delivery delivery only steakhouse. So you could order steak, you know, all the fixings, baked potato, whatever, and they would have it, you know, in an industrial area right off, you know, the west side of town or 277, where they could get around. It's it's you know the site selection would you know, run along the lines of yeah like a logistics company. You know, because it would be a delivery-driven business, and where they could get the cheapest real estate, and, and in the you know drive time and radius of the you know best neighborhoods in town for whatever concept they're designing, and to keep that steak warm. Yeah, right. The steak <laughs> the steak just got to be warm when it gets there. That's the that could be a huge downfall. <laughs> it's <gotta be> sizzling. <laughs>
1: you sent me out a cold steak. We're gonna have words about right. it. Like, there's gonna be a problem. Right. People might get hurt. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, negotiating leases? We've talked a lot about, you know, where you want to be ideally or yeah. not paying too much and what you can expect to pay. Uh,
2: go through the negotiating
1: part of the of the leases.
2: Yeah, I mean, and uh, especially on the on the independent side for, for restaurants and bars you know, outside, there's not a ton of negotiation around things, you know, outside of, you know, price and terms, you know, key terms. The most important part of the lease that a lot of tenants don't think about is the assignment clause because, and that, that's the, the part of the lease, you know, depending on how it's worded, it allows you to transfer the lease to somebody else. Uh, a lot of the value in restaurants, you know, right now, most of the Retail leases are fixed, and you know, if you sign an undermarket lease, you know seven, eight years down the road, uh, there's a lot of equity created in in your business, and if that's transferable, you can capture that. If it's not, you can't.
0: So, as a landlord,
2: we don't want it to be assignable. Um, I, and I, I don't know if they wouldn't want it to be assignable. I don't know if you would want someone in your building that didn't have an out if they needed it though you know what I mean yeah like so if if the restaurant's going out of business and they don't the restaurant doesn't have the ability to go out and market their space you know that that is what it is some landlords compromise by putting in a, a fee to assignment uh, fee. Uh, an assignment fee or a a business sale fee you know where they get a not a profit share but a you know, if the business is sold, they get a price off of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if the landlord isn't taking risk, you know, they should be you know, expecting to just get the fixed rent payment every month, yeah, you know, and ag- agree to what they agreed to.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I don't understand this as much as I should, but yeah, it seems silly to to risk n-
2: having no rent versus right. you know continued rental. Exactly, income. and you know, you lo- you know the, the landlord. I view landlords very, the position very similar to the position of a bank, you know, and, you know, they go out and they make a fixed loan and they put the risk on the tenant, you know, to operate. And, you know, seven years down the road, if they're in a 10 year lease, if the market rent is $5 a square foot more than their 3% annual increases or what they projected, you know, they're, they left money on the table, but, you know, do you want to leave money on the table or do you want to sleep at night? Yeah. Yeah. You know?
0: Can you talk about like negotiating the tenant improvements of who pays for how much or right. what?
2: So I think that it's m- more of a function of how good the credit market is. Similar, like with seller financing, you know, when the banks aren't lending money, seller financing more popular. Yeah, right now there's probably not too many seller financing deals going on with real estate. The the. SBA loan program is amazing for restaurants and bars, nightclubs, they the breweries. They're the number they're the restaurants are the number one industry that uh, SBA loans are originated in, which you wouldn't expect. And everybody, you know, always throws out the, you know, stats about how risky restaurants are. From a landlord perspective, it's really important to know that the SBA default loan rate on a restaurant's only 19%. Wow. And and that happens on average, after the fourth year in operation. So it's way less risky than is perceived by the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, that being said, if somebody can go out and put, you know, $200,000 down with a bank and get a million dollar SBA loan to build out a restaurant, they don't need the landlord to put up any tenant improvement money. And, yeah, you know, the market's so tight right now, anyways, from the supply side that. The landlords don't really have to, uh, but it comes back to, you know, who do you want to be in your building? You know, do you, you know, the best operators, if you want the best operator in the building, you know, you need to make the best deal.
0: Yeah. What's like a normal range of returns that you see landlords looking for on their tenant improvement money that they put in?
2: I think, I think it's, it's varied. Maybe, you know. From my perspective, it should match the cap rate of the property, you know, so I, you know, somewhere in the five to 10% range.
0: Can you talk a little bit about like what the difference is between working with national brands versus like independent ones?
2: So the national brands are, you know, way more capitalized, way easier to work with, you know, at the end, but it takes a really long time to, to get to that point. They will, Yeah. The national franchise QSR folks, I mean, they might negotiate a site for a year or more, an independent restaurant, depending on whether it's on market or off market, right? If it's on the market, they'll go quicker, but they do a lot of off market work too. And then I'd say with an an independent, you know, I've walked into a place and somebody said, I want to buy this. Like, you know, do you have an offer with you? Just on the spot. So, but you know, the, the, the opposite of, of that is that they're less capitalized and less experienced. So there's you know, sometimes more headaches, but if you manage the process, especially for landlords, if you're, you know, you're doing the, the credit checks, getting financial statements, um, making sure that you know, they've got the money and the resume to you know, pull off the deal, then, then you're just fine.
1: Yeah. We talk about that a lot on these podcasts is evaluating the tenants yeah. and anything, any other, like advice you can give to
2: folks on things that they typically don't look for. That, that a landlord doesn't look yeah. for that they should. Yeah. I mean, I think that the landlord needs to understand, I think that the, the biggest disconnect with you know, landlords and, you know, in, in, in this regard is landlords don't understand what kind of sales a restaurant can do at that site. You know, so they the landlord needs to understand or they need to have a broker or a consultant or you know somebody that helps them understand because that's the basis of what the rent should be. You know, people just look at buildings, you know, and what other places are leasing for on the market. If it's not a restaurant, you know, is it really comparable? And is it a restaurant? How do you know that's appropriate? Like we talked about Belmont, you know, places are doing two and a half million dollars in sales with eighteen dollars a square foot rent. That's probably half of where it could be on a worst case, and 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 still hit the benchmarks.
1: Yeah, yeah, they could sell half of that and still make their exactly make it, have a great business.
2: So they, the landlords need to understand how much cash. These retail businesses can generate on on their side.
0: How can like an investor figure out where those trends are and where those opportunities are? Who's like maybe not in the restaurant space right now in Belmont? How do like we find out that Belmont's the place to be for restaurants?
2: So, and I mean that's it's tougher because when you're dealing with small business, it's private markets, private data. It's really tough to figure out the numbers, but it goes back to putting your boots on the ground and going and kicking the rocks in small towns and kicking the rocks in different neighborhoods and talking to people. Yeah, that's another thing that, yeah, just if I'm listing a building, the first thing I do is go and talk to every neighboring business and ask what they wish they had in their neighborhood. For lunch, Or, you know, talk to people on the street and ask, you know, what kind of dinner spots that they go to that they've got to drive a long way to get to. It's, you know, being on the street and, you know, being out with the public and, and, and talking to folks. That, that's the only way you can get it without, you know, being really good friends with somebody's accountant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, like, for... It sounds like what you need is like almost a, a broker who specializes in like the food beverage space. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to meet an Addison in their town or in their city? How do they find that person that is that local expert that is right. the boots on the ground?
2: Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of. Um yeah, you know, we're talking about the real estate trade organizations. ULI is probably one of the best. Um, ICSC International Council of Shopping Centers. They're they're really good. Um, it, it's, ICSC is probably the premier retail organization. And then also. If you're if, if you're in yeah you know, if you want to own you know these types of properties and attract these types of tenants you can also go to the trade associations for those industries North Carolina Hotels and Lodging Association yeah different different groups like that weirdly the, the library here in Charlotte puts on like a monthly or quarterly really cool food and beverage program where they have a speaker come in. Like, uh, I think Dalton from Sabor was there one time they had a brewery panel and you know, just yeah, being active in, in the organizations for the industry that your tenants in. That's what, great.
1: What about some, can we talk about not specifically, obviously, but. In the restaurant world, you've always got a lot of openings. You've always got a lot of closings going on. Yeah. Can you talk about maybe some uh, trends that you're seeing
2: in that in that arena? Yeah. So, like you know, like we were talking about, the the data is private. Uh, with, with hotels, you've got the star reports. You can look at what the ADR is, the average daily rate. You can look at what the occupancy of a market is, and you can kind of model where you think you are. That doesn't exist for restaurants. You know anything comparative to that. So you've got to um you know really just get out there and, and talk to people and um you know have your your boots on the ground.
1: Well, I I don't want to wrap uh, wrap it up too soon, but uh we usually do a little fire round, Jim, you got a couple questions for him? <laughs> How about books? You got any uh journals or books what? that you can recommend for folks to keep up in the
2: Yeah, so I've, I've got a lot of books. Um Negotiating commercial real estate leases on Amazon is a really good one. It's more it's more of a law book, but it's if it, it, if you want to understand the different parts of a lease and you know what goes into it, um, that's good. All the all the ULI books on development have uh, proformas. And, you know, how much if you're going to develop a building, you know, you need to know, you know, what percentage of the cost you can pay for the land, um, that kind of stuff. And then I'll throw out for the restaurant community, Restaurant Success by the Numbers is a is a really cool book on concept design operations. And I mean, it's pretty good primer on the restaurant business for for landlords or restaurant properties, too.
1: Yeah, now that like upfit, I'm sure you've seen this go horribly wrong, like folks using the wrong, like thinking they know, you know, the some other segment of building or construction, and then coming into restaurant and thinking they, or just moving
2: to another area. Yeah. Where do you think things go wrong and right in that scenario? It, yeah, so the the uh, it's kind of like when when you were 19 and you took economics 101 and you, know, you thought you were you know smarter than the chairman of the Fed, and, Um, but the the, the where people really get into trouble is when they have a construction background and there's a lot of construction guys that get into restaurant business. And, um, you know, sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, you know, if somebody's from out of the market or a you know, different spot of the country and they come into town and they don't know the local building codes, the local health codes. So the health codes is even, you know, beyond you know, the building code that the health department has certain requirements about how many sinks you need, what the slope of your grease trap needs to be mm-hmm. um, all the MEP infrastructure that supports you know, the use of a restaurant um, is super niche. So that's, yeah, you know, stuff you need to look into. Have a you know, good contractor, local contractor, look into for you. Yeah,
1: you, you need. I mean, you're just talking about some internal things inside the building. I mean, you get into the external things, and that that can vary from one side of the street to the other, depending on how many parking spaces right, you might need. Right. So, yeah, I and, can and, see that. And
2: Charlotte's really tough on. I think we're one of the the strictest in the market for parking spaces required. Which you know, and we we get yeah. You know, the, the government wants us to ride the light rail, but then they also make us have 50 parking spaces for every restaurant that we open or you right. know it, 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 it's kind of silly to me but um the zoning is huge uh and and you know what your setback is what you can fit on the site you know how big the floor area ratio can be
1: yeah. That floor area ratio that, I mean, s- somebody like you, that's an expert. I mean, that's where you guys just pay for yourself. And that alone is, I mean, those numbers are workable too. You can, right. you can move your kitchen around or like a waiting room or a right. bar area to right. get to almost back into the, if you've only got a set number of parking spaces, right. you can almost back into that number. Can't you by yeah.
2: designing your restaurant? Yeah, the exactly. It, the, the, you know, programming, you know, where things are laid out and, um, you know, what will help you, you know, kind of find the best solution there. And also, you know, we're talking about before using outdoor space. that It's really, really important because you can generate a lot of money outside on a sunny day, but you're not paying rent on the grass in the air.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a nugget that we haven't even chatted about. We chatted about that before, like the rooftop, you buy a building or you rent a whole building, like, and there's no rooftop there, but you put one in. I mean, essentially you just added square footage that you didn't originally pay for. right? And that sometimes can be the most highest income producing
2: right. area, right? Right. Absolutely. We And I'll give you an example where I've got a listing right now that They've already done the plans and gotten it engineered. They just haven't put the rooftop on yet. And basically, the cost is a hundred fifty thousand dollars to add onto the roof a rooftop that would fit fifty seats. Wow! And that seems like a no brainer to me. You know, three you know three thousand dollars a seat. Um, you make that up, yeah, pretty quick.
0: Yeah. What's a, a common mistake or obstacle that landlords don't see before they deal with their first? food beverage uh, tenant?
2: I, I think it goes back to, um, you know, e- evaluating the, the credit of the tenant. Um, I, I mean, I can't stress that enough and how important that is because, you know, there's a lot of bootstrappers in the restaurant business and everybody wants to you know, help out a bootstrapper. Um, but you know, knowing what they're capable of and knowing that they've got the cash, not only to do the build out, but to, keep paying rent through the build out you know, because usually they only get two or three months sometimes the build out might take five or six so they're cutting checks on a space that's not making money um, so looking at the working capital how much working capital they have beyond um, you know what the project cost is supposed to do and then also conceptually um, you know maybe you know if you if you own um, a restaurant on a certain part of town you um, you know, or a certain area, a certain concept might not work in that spot.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like not only being careful to evaluate, you know, how much capital they have, but also being realistic to how, when, when they're going to open, whether it's 60 days or 90 days or six months. Right. Exactly. So a realistic approach from both sides. And what about, we talked about somebody going over, like not getting it done in time, not opening in time. Right. How often do they go over budget as well? I,
2: I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've met somebody that <laughs> had an on-budget build-out. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say almost every time it goes over budget, it you know, the more infrastructure you have, the, the greater the chance. And I mean, there's other ways to control that by doing, you know, fixed price contracts, you know, really having an attorney that knows something about construction contracts and how, you know, to provide assistance in negotiating with your contractor, having a contractor you can trust. But I mean, I've seen people do, you know, go double over budget. And at that point, you know, once you get double over budget you're cutting so many corners yeah. on the fine touches that you know you're handcuffed out of the gate and you're just you know probably prolonging the inevitable of yeah you know, closing the doors
1: can you give us an example of something like that happening
2: uh, I don't I don't know that I want to <laughs> <laughs> no names involved yeah no, no, names. No, no names yeah you know but um, I would say that you know a um, yeah well, there, there was a restaurant uptown that um, yeah, you know, they'd open in a hotel, and uh, I think they were open for like thirty days. It was uh, like a, a Japanese restaurant. They were open for you know, a couple weeks or a couple months, and yeah, you know, I would suspect that they spent too much money on the build out and burned up their working capital and um, yeah, you know, closed the door. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. There's folks are going to want to, you know, get in touch with you. I'm assuming and get some expertise and hopefully, you know, bring some business your way. Can you tell
2: folks how they can get in touch with you? Sure. At Addison DeMalle, National Restaurant Properties. We, uh, you can look us up. Our website's restaurantstore.com. We. Uh, we're actually we're doing a new website that's supposed to go live, I think this week. My boss is uh the guy that owns our company, he's seventy-five. He's on, he's owned twenty six bars and restaurants in Charlotte himself over the years. And um he started selling a few for himself and that's when he realized like I could sell restaurants for other people <laughs> and you know make a lot of money. Quit opening my own <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna quit opening restaurants well, and not start take the risk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um Yes, yeah, so, and then yeah, that eventually got him into real estate, and he's been doing this in Charlotte for fifty-one years. He um, doesn't do too many deals anymore, but still comes in the office every day and and you know, yells at me when when I'm uh, you know, uh, getting sideways on um, stuff. But um, yeah, good good resource to have. We, we got our new websites going live this week. He uh, the, the first day I started, I, I asked him about. Yeah, you know, I was like Bob, you know, our, our website's kind of old. You know, he was like, he asked me what, he was like, you're, you know, you're from the finance industry. What, What's a change we could make around here? And uh, I talked to him about the website and he was like, our website looks old. Why don't you go knock on some doors? <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs> but uh, yeah, so they can look us up on our, our, our soon to be new website, restaurantstore.com. Um, shoot me an email at addison at restaurantstore.com or addison.demali at gmail.com.
1: Cool. Got it. This has been a lot of fun. I've had a smile on my face the whole time. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. I hope, I hope uh, you have as well.
2: Yeah, it's it great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.